when we label people, then we put them in that box, you know. But it's about behavior. It's how I behave as a person. And to label someone, oh, he's a player or she's a, mm. um, a racist or whatever, mm. um, I think labels are incredibly destructive. Mm. And we then in, spend up a lot of energy defending ourselves or having to understand the other person, uh, you know, the other person having to defend themselves. Mm. I think we've got to shift a lot of that out of the way and hear each other's stories. Mm. I think, I mean, if I was teaching in a primary or a high school, again, I would want to encourage children not to make assumptions about each other. This is the Freedom After podcast by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. My name is Nawo Mokhopa, and you're listening to Karen Hurt. Oftentimes, people's uh, school years, it's that time where the assumptions haven't really stuck yet. You know what I mean? Those boxes, we're aware of them and we navigate them, but they're, they're theoretical at that time, you know, and they're still, they're still very malleable, mm. you know. So, yeah, I'm really curious about your childhood. I was born in Zambia in 1957 in Ndola, and then we moved to Lusaka, where, which is where I started schooling. I grew up, and I know you're heading towards me wanting to tell you about kissing catches as a game. <laughs> as, as a game we played at school, and I will grant your <laughs> wish. Yeah, we used. To, I was a very fast runner. We used to play kissing catches. It was, of course, in those days, boys versus girls, and you know we were. It was very heterosexual, uh, heterosexual and heteronormative. Um, and uh, I used to have to slow down so I could get caught <laughs> to be kissed. Okay. But yeah. at home, um, mm. I'd like to mention that. Um, you know, one of the questions you, you, you mentioned you'd like me to think about was when I felt most free. Mm. And, you know, I'm very grateful to have been thinking about that over the last, you know, few days. Um, mm. Because I used to feel very free in growing up in the home I did. I had a mother and a father. Uh, my mother is still alive. She's 91. Um, and a sister. And um, I spent a lot of time playing on my own. Mm. And I loved it. I mean, I there was this tree in the garden that I would climb. And I don't know why I did it, but I peeled off. The bark was very easy to peel. And I'd spend hours there just sitting among the branches. And... It got me thinking about how, you know, my mom was the one in charge of getting us clothes, but she made a lot of our clothes, including our undies when we were little. <laughs> and we were never forced stereotypically in a gendered way. We wore shorts and T-shirts a lot of the time. Yeah. My mom would sew us dresses for special occasions and actually, it would be more for special occasions. But mm. if you want to get on with life, you need to wear sensible clothes for climbing trees or, 
you know, I was I was fortunate enough to do pony riding and so on. And I, I only remember being told by one of my parents to um, to act to behave like a girl post puberty, because I I used to um, I used to loll around on the carpet and do. <laughs> Cart, you know, cartwheels, mm. head over whole shoulders. But then I started menstruating when I was ten, mm. so that seemed to shift. That shifted things, although it wasn't gone on and on about. I mean, I don't know what the hell was happening to my body, mm. but um, you know, it does shift with. It did shift a little bit with puberty, but my parents always encourage us to play with whatever we wanted. I mean, I played with marbles a lot. I played with, I had I had some dolls. I had, um, you know, and I'd get all the teddy bears and dolls together and, and make little books for them to teach them. And I played with, I've still got them, little dinky cars, we called them, their little metal mm. cars. And yeah, so I think, I think I grew, I grew up being let free or being unconstrained by stereotypes. And I think it's quite remarkable for that generation. I mean, my father would be 94 by now and my mother's 91. And we've, they never really said, you know, behave like a daughter or behave like a son. And I think that, that's been very liberating my whole life, I think. Yeah. I'm hearing that I, and I'm thinking about my parents. So, when, so this, this notion of being asked to wear dresses on special occasions... I'm thinking about my parents and how when we're at home, um, or at least when I lived at home, um, everyone was free to kind of just like be. My mom is there in like a, a vest and like track pants. My dad is sitting cross-legged on the couch, maybe reading something or listening to music. Um, you know what I mean? All manner of things. And then we go into public and then suddenly my mom becomes particularly feminine. Mm. And, I, you know, and it was, it, I think I grew up watching that happening and maybe without words, I grew to learn that there are maybe like needs or obligations or things that we serve in public, outside. And maybe public also means outside of our bodies and outside of our minds and beings in that way, you know, that goes against how we see ourselves, you know, and that kind of, that point of, what's the word now? Contestation, I think is the word. Where it's a give and take, right? Like moment by moment, you'll give this and you'll take that. And you'll, okay, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And it's when you go, I mean, for me, the personal is political and that's really important. Mm. But also, when I thought about your question about being free, I kind of realized that being less free was when I was in society mm. when you go out and I think you're kind of saying a similar thing mm. there's that public private mm. kind of distinction but it's when you go out there that you have to you're expected to conform in some way mm. I'm wondering what was happening in the world um, while you were in primary school um, yeah there's a kind of a couple of thoughts that are kind of going around right now but in particular, I'm interested in kind of the beginnings of 
your political career as well, um, because you know Karen Hurt is a badass. <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm trying to see if at all reasonable, you know, um, are there origins in your your worldview, um, your political sensibilities that were picked up in your childhood. Um, I think there were, and I was a child during um, when um, Northern Rhodesia became Zambia and Kenneth Kowanda became the first president, and I remember all the excitement of the main avenue, this is a long time ago, um, with beautiful flags fluttering, and, and, and there was a vibe. There was also... I remember sensing adults and I only mixed with white, other white mm-hmm. colonial families. I mean, my father was a civil servant. He was a town and regional planner. My mom was a home manager. Mm-hmm. Um, would not call her a housewife because I've got serious problems with calling people housewives or house husbands. Um, mm-hmm. And I started school when the schools were open to all races. In fact, Kenneth oh. Cowinder's son went to Woodlands Primary School. Um, I think he was in my sister's grade, if I'm not mistaken. But I do remember this kind of undercurrent. Um, But I also remember, and I have such a strong memory of this. There was a man who we called Alec, which was probably, which was wrong. We should have been told to call him by his surname or you know, or uncle so and so. He was younger than my parents, but much older than us. And he worked as a domestic worker in our home. Mm. That was a time, you know, when men first entered um, domestic work before women, because yeah. women had to stay at home mm. and have children and do whatever. Uh, and Alec must be in his eighties. I mean, I, I would love to tr- trace him. I remember overhearing an adult conversation. They'd, they'd been, we'd had family, friends over for drinks, and normally the children were told to go and play in the garden while the parents, like, chinked their gin and tonics or whatever mm. they chinked, <laughs> probably a few beers as well. And I remember overhearing Alec. It was like a, a stiff vibe in the house, and I remember overhearing him telling my parents that he overheard when he was probably serving them their drinks and chips and whatever, that one of their friends had called him the K-word and that he was not prepared to work in a home Hmm. where he was called or anyone like him was called by that name. I, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure some of the friends were probably quite were racist or, you know, they're colonial types. And I don't remember him leaving, but I do remember that incident because it was, I must have been about six, but it was a big, like, head-opening thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think we were brought up to be empathetic, respectful, and have those kind of values. And so... You know, I stopped and thought about it because I liked him. He gave my, me my first pull on a little homemade cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> hey, Alec, can I try that? 
okay. <laughs> and, you know, he helped me. He was a very nice person. And um, I took what he was feeling seriously, I think. Mm. And then I remember now the class had black African and, and white colonial kids in. And mm. kids get on with being kids. But I do remember the the parent level, not necessarily my parents, but like, oh, so I think I think that was a very significant moment for me. And then we traveled. My father, my father, in the Hague, there was um, the gathering of you know town planners and other people from all over the world. And I was probably about seven, and my mother homeschooled me there. I remember. I remember being sent to the corner because I'd been naughty for something. I can't imagine being naughty ever. But um, <laughs> uh, and I can't imagine you naughty. Either. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, and so, but we would socialize, you know, on, on the weekend or something. And this was uh, people from all over the world, and and that was a brilliant exposure to have because. You know, don't you can't be the bee's knees because everyone here is children or parents, and we all play balls or whatever we did. I do remember sure. peanut machine, but uh, <laughs> we put a little shiny coin in and get a handful. So I think our exposure as young, my exposure as a youngster, because I schooled in England in, in a school in Heston for six months. And I was an outsider there. I remember they called me a Zambian bush pig. Hectic. I still haven't Googled if there is such a thing. But I felt like an outsider. So, And then coming to South Africa, I went to school in Westville. And I was an outsider again. So it was like... So I knew what it was like to be an outsider. And in, and, and in Holland, I knew what it was to not understand what people around me were saying. Because English wasn't the dominant language. So I think all those experiences, they kind of shape you. Among my involvements was with the, the kind of women's, women's organizations. And I think I was very lucky to be in Durban at that time in the early 80s. I left Durban in 1988 because there was a, so much of activism and there was also opportunities to be in racially mixed organizations. And I, so I learned, I mean, I was just a little pipsqueak in those organizations <laughs> and I learned a lot. Um, at the time, there's a lot of security police. I mean, all our meetings were photographed outside and I don't know what they've done with all the pictures. If you think of all the millions of meetings they must have uh, watched and taken photos. But... Um, there was, I think you could call it a, a movement in Durban of women from all, all the different sort of racially based communities you can mm. think of. And, um, you know, from university, I'd brought a feminism of a kind. But mm. I think that that feminism was always about equality and equity. Mm. Um, you know, you were talking about radical feminism earlier, which is like, mm. oh, they managed to send one man to the moon. Why didn't they send them all there? Kind of <laughs> cartoon. That was a British cartoon at one stage. It really upset some of our men comrades who were um, 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, we helping you to design and out your feminist magazine, and you want to put us all on the moon. <laughs> but we're all friends now. Um, and from that, I'm just focusing on the one because I was also involved in a non-racial teachers organization. Um, we decided to bring out a newsletter and we called it Speak. Um, and it was, it had the early speaks and I think we carried the logo all the way through. Um, it was interesting. It had a cute logo, one of our speak collective members was very good at drawing with someone taking a, a clothes peg off the lips of someone uh, yeah. so like speak capital mm -hmm. letters um, and because of security police observing us and we decided that the newsletter should become independent and mm -hmm. so and we brought it out in English and in Isuzulu and so Speak became an independent socialist feminist magazine that we mostly distributed through community organizations, trade unions, and the whole point was to give a voice to women's voices mm -hmm. and their experience. So there's some very powerful interviews with um, women from the trade union movement raising the very issues we're still raising about mm. male power and patriarchal conditions and not being listened to. Like you stand up as a woman in a trade union meeting and all the men start talking. Sure. The man stands up and everyone must be quiet. You know, it's as basic as that, actually, mm. that you don't have the brain power to enter and engage. Now, I, I'm sure things have changed somewhat, but, but the very issues that we wrote about, we had a women's health uh, series, which I, I, I used to do. I was, I've always been interested in women's health and... Uh, reproductive and sexuality kind of education yeah. um, and I've carried that through as a freelancer for many years um, and we had an internationalist vibe we'd so we'd do little snippets of what women in Bolivia are doing or what women all over the world are doing <laughs> and um, and we used to travel out and distribute these magazines which in the beginning was uh, was we rolled off it some kind guy comrade would print them out at medical school on these Ronio machines you are probably you know that's kind of along with typewriter technology <laughs> can you imagine it <laughs> yeah no, it was very exciting at night sneak in with our paper and mm. off go the Ronio machines we used to staple and but gradually over the years um Speak did change a bit. We attracted funding. Mm -hmm. We never sought funding because we were volunteer. Mm -hmm. But um, and it wasn't called gender then. But it was be women's women and development, women in development, women's struggles. You know, it was it was big on funders' agendas from the eighties, kind of. 
and eventually we became a monthly magazine. We had staff. I was one of the first staff members together with Pumalela and Tombela in Zimande. And we used to go to rallies and sell speaks. Uh, they were probably about 20 cents each. But it was a way of raising feminist issues and giving a voice to them. I don't think we wrote any of the articles until much later when we had journalists working on Speak, yeah. But in those days, we learned how to do everything. The design allowed, we drew things ourselves. I'm going to get you a tote bag written certified badass. <laughs> <laughs> Is badass a good word? It's a, yeah, it's okay. a very good word. Okay, I'll it's take very, it. very, very good word. <laughs> Socialist feminist badass. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, 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 there we go. <laughs> okay. Um, Always um, an editor here. Yeah. <laughs> So I um, just mm. sort of talked about those early days, and sure. then uh, yeah, and then I moved to Joburg, and we had a speak office here with Shamimir. And then the other thing that I really feel, and I'm engaged in in trying to change this, is the way we describe. I don't really like the word gender-based harm or gender-based violence. I think I don't think it quite captures. It's like it's this thing. It's like this drone that goes around causing harm. We abstract it. Mm, sure. And that is such a problem. I mean, if you think about the, that horrible gang rape um, in Krugersdorp on the mine dump, yeah. which are probably very toxic, by the way, which is a result mm. of uncaring mm. capitalist people who don't tidy up their mess of mining trails after them so it's a group of a group of nine women or what I think it was nine were raped by a gang of men mm. that's passive construction mm. a group of nine men raped Thank a you. group of men raped those women mm. we're always hearing about that kind of violence in the passive why can't we say a man killed his wife. Not a wife was killed by her husband. Why are we softening atrocity? Mm. We've got to start using active voice. Um, and I, I think, and that applies to a lot of different things that we describe. Mm. Um, workers were fired by oh. the bosses. You know, like, no, it's actually who's doing it. Put them to the front and put the spotlight on them. Mm -hmm. And the academic world uses a lot of passive language, but it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And victim blaming. You know, when uh, in earlier times, the Joe Slova wrote a paper that was quite well known called Has Socialism Failed? Well, for me, capitalism has failed humanity. It's a, it's a brutal, 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 hostile environment for people to live and work in. It's driven by greed and profit. We've seen that all the way through from Nestle as a company promoting formula for babies instead of breastfeeding. This is, you know, in years gone by, there's always a subtle way of um, making you feel as a mother or as a parent you're not good enough because 
you, you know, you should be feeding them formula. Now we know breast is best. best. But mm-hmm. when I think of, of, you know, imagine in places where it's, you know, it's you, people are poor and are given a can of formula to take home from after giving birth. And billboards tell you that, you know, whatever. Um, if you really love your child. Excuse me. <laughs> Just like some of the fast food outlets. If you really love your family, you'll come home with a big barrel of salty, oily, fatty <laughs> chicken, you know. So the manipulation that's there, giving out toys with fast foods and... Mm. Um, and creating us to be very unhealthy and 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 at high risk for obesity, overweight, diabetes, heart disease. That's what we fed. We're one of the most unequal. We are the most unequal society in the world, and that's because of capitalism. I believe. You know, in other countries it might be because there's fascist socialism or something. I'm not an expert on that. You know, in as much as we have to dismantle patriarchy, we really need a serious look at changing what we value in people's lives. I mean, it's got to be people before profits. Otherwise, what's the point? Can you tell us about something that you are still unfree from, that you either wish or are working towards being free from? Well, I think it's a, it's a good segue because what I've described now of, of trying to adopt the ident- one of my identities of being a parent instead of a mom or a dad, because I know moms do far more work um, and sacrifice their own creative time and leisure time. Um, you know, sometimes I think of artists. There's Helen Sabidi. Um, there are other artists, um, Esther Mahlangu. They manage somehow in a patriarchal society to be the artists that they've become. But how many women, playwrights, artists, orators, you know, writers just never got time to put pencil or pen to paper. Um, that, that's why, where are all the women writers? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot now, but historically, well, they were, they were cooking. They were fetching water or firewood or, you know, things are changing, but... And the question, are women ready to lead? I just, I just can't bear that question anymore. And I can't bear it when women leaders stand up and say, women are ready to lead. I mean, why are we, fo- you know, I just don't get it. Um, and I think we need to challenge those kind of statements. But on the same way, what I think I'm not free of and you're not free of and nobody's really free of are labels like husband and wife. I mean, what does the word husband embody? What does the word wife embody? If you're in a gay relationship, you get asked, so who's the husband and who's the wife? You know, it's crazy. And um, the label girl 
about uh, the label boy. Um, there's so many labels. I mean, I think the fact that I grew up in my early years not being labeled by my parents was like the greatest gift they could give me. And I want everyone to be free of these labels. I don't want people to have to say I'm heterosexual or I'm bisexual or, you know, I think, I think we have to, I think we have to embrace a fluid world, a really fluid world. Um, and we have to address all the labels and all the weird things we say. You know, like for a long time, men, CEOs or heads of NGOs, if you're a woman, you get asked, how do you juggle being a pair, you know, being a mother and your job? Mm-hmm. And men didn't ne- were never. I mean, you just, we've got to ask the same questions of women and men. Can you tell us about something that you were once unfree from, that you are free from now? I think age brings some freedoms. Because I used to care terribly what people might think of what I said. And, you know, <laughs> am I being politically correct? Or am I, you know, and I was never one of the activist types that read a lot of theory. I've always been... Um, actually, I read more theory now than I did then, but there were, you know, Marxist reading groups and so on. I've been more of a hands-on person. And so, no, not really being able to speak my mind more, I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm happy for people to take me on and question how I think about something because I want to learn and, uh, you know, I'll... I'll percolate that, and I, I'm not, um, I think if we allow ourselves, we never stop growing. As a woman, being feeling much more confident to challenge sexism, um, and I like, I like having confidence to be active and speak my mind in any forum. I love that. I love being able to do that. I think many of us are, but we don't necessarily admit it. Of being very self-conscious, I think I was quite self-conscious for a long time in my life, and I'm not so much anymore. Um, and and I enjoy that. I, I don't know. If there's anything positive that came out of COVID, like I, I could walk to the shops and not in my pajamas, but nearly in my pajamas, <laughs> and not—it's <laughs> like you know, just dashing out. I, I'm just—I'm me, and I'm being—I'm loving that I'm being more free to be me and to let Karen come out. I don't identify only as being a, a parent or a. I use parent consciously. Uh, I think that the dichotomy or the the polarity between a father and a mother is very oppressive. And I think it lets fathers off the hook. You know, much as it's fun to be called, you know, the hockey mom or the whoever mom. 
I'm, I'm trying to surface that I'm a parent. And now that my offspring are, you know, don't need me in that same way of a parent, it, it offers me freedoms to be able to write and to do, um, um, you know, sport again and to kind of take up a very active life of my own, knowing that they encourage me all the way and support me and, you know, they, it's, it's, a great, it's a great age to reach as a parent with the people I gave birth to who... Yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely space for me. I love it. Freedom After by the Nelson Mandela Foundation is produced by Showcast Media, an original score by Subusile Kaba, and cover artwork by Paula Manelli. The Freedom After podcast is supported by the Old Mutual Foundation. My name is Nawo Mohopa. Thank you for listening.